Section 7 of Chapter 22 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 22, Section 7. The papers written by Monmouth were delivered by Lady Mary to her husband. If the advice which they contained had been followed, there can be little doubt that the object of the adviser would have been attained. The king would have been bitterly mortified. There would have been a general panic among public men of every party. Even Marlborough's serene fortitude would have been severely tried, and Shrewsbury would probably have shot himself. But that Fenwick would have put himself in a better situation is by no means clear. Such was his own opinion. He saw that the step which he was urged to take was hazardous. He knew that he was urged to take that step not because it was likely to save himself, but because it was certain to annoy others. And he was resolved not to be Monmouth's tool. On the 1st of December the bill went through the earliest stage without a division. Then Fenwick's confession, which had, by the royal command, been laid on the table, was read. And then Marlborough stood up. "'Nobody can wonder,' he said, "'that a man whose head is in danger should try to save himself by accusing others.' I assure your lordships that, since the accession of his present majesty, I have had no intercourse with Sir John on any subject whatever, and this I declare on my word of honour. Marlborough's assertion may have been true, but it was perfectly compatible with the truth of all that Fenwick had said. Godolphin went further. I certainly did, he said, continue to the last, in the service of King James and of his queen. I was esteemed by them both. But I cannot think that a crime— it is possible that they and those who are about them may imagine that I am still attached to their interest. That I cannot help. But it is utterly false that I have had any such dealings with the court of Saint-Germain as are described in the paper which your lordships have read. Fenwick was then brought in and asked whether he had any further confession to make. Several peers interrogated him, but to no purpose. Monmouth, who could not believe that the papers which he had sent to Newgate had produced no effect, put in a friendly and encouraging manner several questions intended to bring out answers which would have been by no means agreeable to the accused lords no such answer however was to be extracted from fenwick monmouth saw that his ingenious machinations had failed enraged and disappointed he suddenly turned round and became more zealous for the bill than any other peer in the house Everybody noticed the rapid change in his temper and manner, but that change was at first imputed merely to his well-known levity. On the 8th of December the bill was again taken into consideration, and on that day Fenwick, accompanied by his counsel, was in attendance. But before he was called in, a previous question was raised. Several distinguished Tories, particularly Nottingham, Rochester, Norman B. and Leeds, said that, in their opinion, it was idle to inquire whether the prisoner was guilty or not guilty, unless the House was of opinion that he was a person so formidable that, if guilty, he ought to be attainted by an act of Parliament. They did not wish, they said, to hear any evidence. For even on the supposition that the evidence left no doubt of his criminality, they should still think it better to leave him unpunished than to make a law for punishing him. The general sense, however, was decidedly for proceeding. The prisoner and his counsellor were allowed another week to prepare themselves, and at length, on the 15th of December, the struggle commenced in earnest. 
The debates were the longest and the hottest, the divisions were the largest, the protests were the most numerously signed that had ever been known in the whole history of the House of Peers. Repeatedly, the benches continued to be filled from ten in the morning till past midnight. The health of many lords suffered severely, for the winter was bitterly cold, but the majority was not disposed to be indulgent. One evening Devonshire was unwell. He stole away and went to bed, but Black Rod was soon sent to bring him back. Leeds, whose constitution was extremely infirm, complained loudly. It is very well, he said, for young gentlemen to sit down to their suppers and their wine at two o'clock in the morning, but some of us old men are likely to be of as much use here as they, and we shall soon be in our graves if we are forced to keep such hours at such a season. So strongly was party spirit excited that this appeal was disregarded, and the House continued to sit fourteen or fifteen hours a day. The chief opponents of the bill were Rochester, Nottingham, Normanby, and Leeds. The chief orators on the other side were Tankerville, who, in spite of the deep stains which a life singularly unfortunate had left on his public and private character, always spoke with an eloquence which riveted the attention of his hearers. Burnett, who made a great display of historical learning, Wharton, whose lively and familiar style of speaking acquired in the House of Commons sometimes shocked the formality of the Lords, and Monmouth, who had always carried the liberty of debate to the verge of licentiousness, and who now never opened his lips without inflicting a wound on the feelings of some adversary. A very few nobles of great weight, Devonshire, Dorset, Pembroke, and Ormond, formed a third party. They were willing to use the bill of attainder as an instrument of torture for the purpose of wringing a full confession out of the prisoner. But they were determined not to give a final vote for sending him to the scaffold. The first division was on the question whether secondary evidence of what Goodman could have proved should be admitted. On this occasion, Burnett closed the debate by a powerful speech which none of the Tory orators could undertake to answer without premeditation. A hundred and twenty-six lords were present, a number unprecedented in our history. There were seventy-three contents and fifty-three non-contents. Thirty-six of the minority protested against the decision of the House. The next great trial of strength was on the question whether the bill should be read a second time. The debate was diversified by a curious episode. Monmouth, in a vehement declamation, threw some severe and well-merited reflections on the memory of the late Lord Jeffreys. The title and part of the ill-gotten wealth of Jeffreys had descended to his son, a dissolute lad who had lately come of age, and who was then sitting in the house. The young man fired at hearing his father reviled. The house was forced to interfere, and to make both the disputants promise that the matter should go no further. On this day a hundred and twenty-eight peers were present. The second reading was carried by seventy-three to fifty-five, and forty-nine of the fifty-five protested. It was now thought by many that Fenwick's courage would give way. It was known that he was very unwilling to die. Hitherto he might have flattered himself with hopes that the bill would miscarry. But now that it had passed one house and seemed certain to pass the other, it was probable that he would save himself by disclosing all that he knew. He was again put to the bar and interrogated. He refused to answer on the ground that his answers might be used against him by the Crown at the Old Bailey. He was assured that the House would protect him, but he pretended that this assurance was not sufficient. The House was not always sitting. He might be brought to trial during a recess and hanged before their lordships met again. The royal word alone, he said, would be a complete guarantee. The peers ordered him to be removed. 
and immediately resolved that Wharton should go to Kensington and should entreat his majesty to give the pledge which the prisoner required. Wharton hastened to Kensington and hastened back with a gracious answer. Fenwick was again placed at the bar. The royal word, he was told, had been passed, that nothing which he might say there should be used against him in any other place. Still he made difficulties. He might confess all that he knew, and yet might be told that he was still keeping something back. In short, he would say nothing till he had a pardon. He was then, for the last time, solemnly cautioned from the woolsack. He was assured that if he would deal ingenuously with the lords, they would be intercessors for him at the foot of the throne, and that their intercession would not be unsuccessful. If he continued obstinate, they would proceed with the bill. A short interval was allowed him for consideration, and he was then required to give his final answer. "'I have given it,' he said. "'I have no security. If I had, I should be glad to satisfy the house.' He was then carried back to his cell, and the peers separated, having sat far into the night. At noon they met again. The third reading was moved. Tennyson spoke for the bill with more ability than was expected from him, and Monmouth with as much sharpness as in the previous debates. But Devonshire declared that he could go no further. He had hoped that fear would induce Fenwick to make a frank confession. That hope was at an end. The question now was simply whether this man should be put to death by an act of Parliament, and to that question Devonshire said that he must answer, not content. It is not easy to understand on what principle he can have thought himself justified in threatening to do what he did not think himself justified in doing. He was, however, followed by Dorset, Ormond, Pembroke, and two or three others. Devonshire, in the name of his little party, and Rochester, in the name of the Tories, offered to waive all objections to the mode of proceeding, if the penalty were reduced from death to perpetual imprisonment. But the majority, though weakened by the defection of some considerable men, was still a majority, and would hear of no terms of compromise. The third reading was carried by only sixty-eight votes to sixty-one. Fifty-three lords recorded their dissent, and forty-one subscribed a protest in which the arguments against the bill were ably summed up. The peers whom Fenwick had accused took different sides. Marlborough steadily voted with the majority, and induced Prince George to do the same. Godolphin as steadily voted with the minority, but, with characteristic wariness, abstained from giving any reasons for his votes. No part of his life warrants us in ascribing his conduct to any exalted motive. It's probable that, having been driven from office by the Whigs, and forced to take refuge among the Tories, he thought it advisable to go with his party. As soon as the bill had been read a third time, the attention of the peers was called to a matter which deeply concerned the honor of their order. Lady Mary Fenwick had been, not unnaturally, moved to the highest resentment by the conduct of Monmouth. He had, after professing a great desire to save her husband, suddenly turned around and become the most merciless of her husband's persecutors, and all this solely because the unfortunate prisoner would not suffer himself to be used as an instrument for the accomplishing of a wild scheme of mischief. She might be excused for thinking that revenge would be sweet. In her rage, she showed to her kinsman, the Earl of Carlisle, the papers which she had received from the Duchess of Norfolk. Carlisle brought the subject before the lords. The papers were produced. Lady Mary declared that she had received them from the Duchess. The Duchess declared that she had received them from Monmouth. 
Elizabeth Lawson confirmed the evidence of her two friends. All the bitter things which the petulant Earl had said about William were repeated. The rage of both the great factions broke forth with ungovernable violence. The Whigs were exasperated by discovering that Monmouth had been secretly laboring to bring to shame and ruin two eminent men with whose reputation the reputation of the whole party was bound up. The Tories accused him of dealing treacherously and cruelly by the prisoner and the prisoner's wife. Both among the Whigs and among the Tories, Monmouth had, by his sneers and invectives, made numerous personal enemies, whom fear of his wit and of his sword had hitherto kept in awe. All these enemies were now open-mouthed against him. There was great curiosity to know what he would be able to say in his defense. His eloquence, the correspondent of the States General wrote, had often annoyed others. He would now want it all to protect himself. That eloquence, indeed, was of a kind much better suited to attack than to defense. Monmouth spoke near three hours in a confused and rambling manner, boasted extravagantly of his services and sacrifices, told the House that he had borne a great part in the Revolution, that he had made four voyages to Holland in the evil times, that he had since refused great places, that he had always held lucre in contempt. I, he said, turning significantly to Nottingham, have bought no great estate. I have built no palaces. I am twenty thousand pounds poorer than when I entered public life. My old hereditary mansion is ready to fall about my ears. Who that remembers what I have done and suffered for His Majesty will believe that I speak disrespectfully of him. He solemnly declared, and this was the most serious of the many serious faults of his long and unquiet life, that he had nothing to do with the papers which had caused so much scandal. The papists, he said, hated him. They had laid a scheme to ruin him. His ungrateful kinswoman had consented to be their implement, and had requited the strenuous efforts which he had made in defense of her honor by trying to blast his. When he concluded there was a long silence. He asked whether their lordships wished him to withdraw. Then Leeds, to whom he had once professed a strong attachment, but whom he had deserted with characteristic inconstancy, and assailed with characteristic petulance, seized the opportunity of revenging himself. It is quite unnecessary, the shrewd old statesman said, that the noble earl should withdraw at present. The question which we have now to decide is merely whether these papers do or do not deserve our censure. Who wrote them is a question which may be considered hereafter. It was then moved and unanimously resolved that the papers were scandalous, and that the author had been guilty of a high crime and misdemeanor. Monmouth himself was, by these dexterous tactics, forced to join in condemning his own compositions. Then the House proceeded to consider the charge against him. The character of his cousin, the Duchess, did not stand high, but her testimony was confirmed both by direct and by circumstantial evidence. Her husband said with sour pleasantry, that he gave entire faith to what she had deposed. My Lord Monmouth thought her good enough to be wife to me, and if she's good enough to be wife to me, I am sure that she is good enough to be witness against him. In a house of near eighty peers, only eight or ten seemed inclined to show any favor to Monmouth. He was pronounced guilty of the act of which he had, in the most solemn manner, protested that he was innocent. He was sent to the tower. He was turned out of all his places and his name was struck out of the council book. 
It might well have been thought that the ruin of his fame and of his fortunes was irreparable, but there was about his nature an elasticity which nothing could subdue. In his prison, indeed, he was as violent as a falcon just caged, and would, if he had been long detained, have died of mere impatience. His only solace was to contrive wild and romantic schemes for extricating himself from his difficulties and avenging himself on his enemies. When he regained his liberty, he stood alone in the world. A dishonored man, more hated by the Whigs than any Tory, and by the Tories than any Whig, and reduced to such poverty that he talked of retiring to the country, living like a farmer, and putting his countess into the dairy to churn and to make cheeses. Yet even after this fall, that mounting spirit rose again, and rose higher than ever. When next he appeared before the world, he had inherited the earldom of the head of his family. He had ceased to be called by the tarnished name of Monmouth, and he soon added new luster to the name of Peterborough. He was still all air and fire. His ready wit and his dauntless courage made him formidable. Some amiable qualities, which contrasted strangely with his vices, and some great exploits, of which the effect was heightened by the careless levity with which they were performed, made him popular and his countrymen were willing to forget that a hero of whose achievements they were proud, and who was not more distinguished by parts and valor than by courtesy and generosity, had stooped to tricks worthy of the pillory. End of section 7 Recording by S. T. Macduff